and welcome everybody to the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. Join my father, Rabbi Avi Horowitz, and myself, Ayelet, as we discuss relevant and meaningful ideas and topics inspired by the weekly Torah portion. This podcast is not religiously exclusive. No matter what religion you practice, please feel free to join us as we glean timeless Torah wisdom to help us better navigate the world we live in today, or simply put, just to give us something to think about, because that's always really awesome. So let's get schmoozing. Hey, hey, everyone. We are very excited to be back here and talking about new things and new ideas. And that's always exciting. Fresh. Fresh. Keeping it fresh. So we are going to be delving into topics that come up in this week's Bible reading of uh, Parsha Truma, which is the beginning of the talk and detail and almost obsession of the tabernacle, or otherwise known as the, the Mikdash. So, Mishkan. Mishkan. Thank you. Or Mikdash. It could be both, right? Well, it was the Mikdash until... the Mishkan. Yeah. I think Mishkan is cool. It's a cool name because it refers to the word Shekhinah, which is the presence, the divine presence. And Mikdash means holy. That's the word holy, which is a little bit more abstract, I guess, in a certain way. Um, but that's not where we want to start from. I, we want to start today with a, um, just something that's very, very bothersome to moi, which is like a lot. I think we. I think sometimes uh, we're taught a disservice. I'm not sure if I could say that, but we're conditioned to believe and think of the omni-significance of everything in the Torah. And the omni-significance means that, like, everything has to mean everything. Mm. Right? Yeah. And um, that's a belief. But it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But certainly, if you do come from that perspective, then readings like this are very, very difficult because... If I were to start writing a Torah and I was divine, or if I was a prophet, and uh, you know, I would be selecting those amazing messages that you could sometimes even I don't know stumble across when you're looking for something profound. Hashtag um, inspiring. Yeah, I mean, even <laughs> if you, I mean, talk about you know from heaven to earth the difference, but you can look online and look for like you know profound sayings of stuff and you come across some things that are pretty profound you know people can divine also some some stuff that that has a lot of worth to it of course and you'd think like if the bible is basically like the most sublime book of wisdom uh, that we have at the forefront of our of our religion as like the constitution of a religion in the sense of like it constitutes all of future development of law and of practice and of philosophy, it all has to be rooted in there. In there. So, what no, you lost me. What? <laughs> are we doing with all this reading about the tabernacle? In other words, the Constitution? Do you want to know what I mean by Constitution? Saying, are you just saying the Torah is this what divine... Is it? It's this divine telling of our history and the laws and our connection with God. And you're saying, what the heck is the tabernacle 
doing in there? Why does it take up so much space? Yeah, I mean, uh, we can talk about other stuff that take up a lot of space, but this for sure is the most predominant space taker upper. Because it doesn't have much relevance to us today, and you would think that the divine but contract would be... Yeah, but arguably it didn't have much relevance anytime, except then. Right. Because so, of, because the way it goes is like this. There, there were future temples that were built, and they certainly were inspired by the way the temple of the Mishkan, the, the portable temple, was, was built. Perhaps the attitudes towards it. Um, and, you know, the mitzvot and the commandments that are surrounding it. But that's not a lot of our history. I mean, it's the truth of the matter is the way Maimonides puts it is that there are only s- some some basic laws that are drawn, you know, from as far as like blueprints or as far as like how to create a temple. How to make a temple. And three easy lessons. So the three easy lessons are the tabernacle, the way they created the first temple, which is in the times of Solomon, of Shlomo Melech, and prophecies of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel, Yechezkel, um, as far as some future temple. It's not clear if he was referring to the second temple or the third temple, but the bottom line is is that there are the, the those that need to be the designers of the temple draw their inspiration from these three things. So in other words, the future temple, which I guess none of them saying it, that's probably a good talk for a, for a future podcast. Well, what, that's going to fall from the sky. Well, <laughs> well, there's like, a, there's like a lot of ways to talk about it, but just like, just to try to bring that down to earth to us today, you know, to want to just to try to imagine what, what is that going to look like? <laughs> like what, 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 why are we, you know, if we're, it's so central, but it, but yet it's so far from our imagination and from, you know, what we live day to day and, and from our longing uh, would seem that there's a disconnect between what we're longing, supposedly longing for, what we're actually longing for, which would be, you know, world peace and, prosperity and stuff and we don't know how, like what the beta mikdash what the temples have to do with that meaning we're aspiring and yearning now for things like world peace harmony being able to live in our borders and in our land without being you know pestered and, and bothered and but then we also but then when we bring it down to what the beta mikdash is we're talking about a place where we come and slaughter animals yeah there's a lot of stuff burn incense yeah it doesn't square it doesn't square with what we imagine as spirituality and connecting to god and And world peace well i mean no you know the values of what what we consider important also based on the torah but what you know why is it so central to have a temple but that's going to be some other topic right but but now we're just talking about like why I mean, obviously it's going to be related, but why do we need to spend so much time on things in the Torah that doesn't don't seem to be even relevant to its own system? In other words, if the system of the Torah is to tell us, let's say, precepts, you know, commandments, right? So for, for, for future generations. So why do we have this like predominance of, of, of verses and, and, and chapters that, actually don't deal with anything that uh, is has to do with the future. Almost nothing. Mm-hmm. 
you know, per se. It's not, it's not explicitly, it's not a concept that explicitly is related to the future, right. what we're supposed to do. So if a person, let's say, grows up Jewish and he doesn't know that there was a, um, uh, an, uh, you know, a type of a, of a vessel in the, in the temple that was called a shulchan or a menorah or a mizbeach or a small mizbeach or a big mizbeach and one for incense and one for that and with curtains and the, and the details of the curtains and how the curtains joined each other and there were 50 loops and they were made of brass and they were... And they were interlooped, and they were very ornately, you know, sewed, Colorful. embroidered. What difference does it make, really? Mm-hmm. I, I, I can, I, I must admit that since I'm a child, I've been bothered with this question. I just, I remember going up the steps when I was in fifth grade, and we were about, you know, learning that part of the Torah. We were just started, I think, the same parsha, parsha Truma, and and somebody brought up one of the kids said, "What, what class do we have?" And I said, we're learning Chumash, we're learning about the Mishkan, it's so boring. And it happens to be my teacher was like right behind me. And that's, <laughs> and that's why I remember saying that line, because it was one of those moments where I was just so embarrassed. <laughs> but I also, and it maybe buried that question for, for many years afterwards, but I clearly was bored and I still do not understand. I can entertain myself learning about it because it's like a curiosity and I bought books about it, and 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 there's a lot of symbolism that we try to breathe meaning into, you know, the vessel called the Aron, which is the the uh, the Ark, you know, which is I guess used as inspiration for all kinds of things, even movies, because there's a lot of interesting and you know mysterious history that has to do with you know it's been hidden and it's like the holiest part of the holy part of the temple and but there's been a lot of heroic efforts to try to breathe um some relevance and meaning at least symbolically from these things like the ark refers to the study of torah and what that means to us and the menorah like you know the the candelabra has to do with uh, the performance of mitzvot of, of commandments and the shulchan which is the for the showbread has to do with um fashion show for bread yeah <laughs> i mean it has to do with um eating and sanctifying eating you know and those that that huge part of our life and the mizbeach which is the altar has to do with you know ultimate sacrifice um in our lives and nefesh we call it Okay, but are we, so as we continue in this conversation, are we going to be going forward with trying to um, understand this from the assumption or from the view that um, everything in Torah really is omni-meaningful? What did you use it for? There's a fancy word for it, but it basically means omni-significant. Omni-significant, right. Are we are we trying to tackle it from there, from a place that if it's in the Torah, then it must have... I struggle with it a lot. I struggle with it a lot. I don't know how to. In other words, I, I guess part of what we're we're supposed to believe, but I'm not sure if we have to believe it, mm-hmm. um, is that because the Torah is divine or it has divine source, so it must be omnisignificant. And if we don't understand the omnisignificance of it, that's just because we're human, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, but the Torah was I'm meant for humans. To, yeah, but it also doesn't mean that humans have to 
get to the end of all of its significance. And what would be the point? Because it's revealed in different times in different ways, and it keeps becoming revealed. It's, if it's something eternal, then it's eternal. You can't get to the end of it. Understand? Mm-hmm. So you can't have it both ways, you know? So if it's really eternal, and therefore it's eternally significant, and um, really that's even saying eternally significant is actually a little bit less than saying omnisignificant, because eternally significant means it will always be significant, which is tr- which I have a less of an issue with, right? Mm-hmm. Because the values that are taught in the Torah will always be relevant and significant to the world, whatever the world looks like. Okay. But um, there are things that have more prominence and more importance at different times than others. Okay, and, and but, that would be a conflict because if you said it was omnisignificant, then it would mean that it's all significant, all of it at every point in time. Yes, and that's my problem, and that's really what I, where I want to go to uh, as far as like an approach it's not really the answer of for everything and the whole universe but it's oh man i was excited but it's uh but it's an approach and i i struggle with it but but i think that i i this is what i think i think that um when we look at the torah we have to start from a particular place which means you even mentioned it before that if it's something that stands out of time and it's some it's some kind of like a godly book where it's written forever for always right it it would look like something else if such a thing would be possible to be written right in other words you said two things you said you mentioned the word history and you also said it was written for man so if it's written for man clearly we need a filter to get it down from um, on high in to so that men can relate to it mm-hmm. right mankind can relate to it so how do man how does mankind best relate to this book which is a book of teachings of eternal teachings now like i said having said that i still don't feel satisfied saying that well we need to read you know four huge portions in the torah and a lot of other details and other parshiot that have to do with the construction of a temple, how they constructed it, and the, the materials, the materials, and, the and, the, and, and actually when they did it, there's two, there's two portions that have to do with the instruction, and there's two with the implementation. Mm-hmm. It's huge. It's a lot, a lot of verses, right? And I, I, I just say to myself, like, I still, you know, I struggle with it a lot. And, I, and, and the beginning of the approach that we're, we were about to say is has to do with the fact that um, you need to start from a type of wisdom. There are different types of wisdoms, right? You know, you can talk about philosophy, you can talk about history, you can talk about science, right? You can talk about um, ethics, morals, you know, there's different types of teachings, right? Um spiritual connection you know there's a lot of different wisdoms right and i think that the common denominator of all the wisdoms in the sense of that how are we going to get how are we going to get how are we going to connect how are we going to get how are we going to get all the people to connect to this document that has a divine source 
um, so that it should be the common denominator for all people always. And I think that that has to be history. Now, when I say that, I'm very, very conscious of the fact that, you know, I myself have taught many, many years. I've, I've, I've taught a message over many, many years, which is that the, the, the Torah is not a historical document, right? right. It, would, it would completely fail as a historical document. It's not, it's not a once upon a time and then, right? It doesn't, the chronology is off. The, the, you, you, you can't follow the story. Like anything you would Huge need. chunks are out. Right. You would, anything you would need for something to be a history you know, and things that we might be interested in learning about history in terms of the general context of when it was said and how it was said, it's, it's not there. It's not a history book, right? It's not a history book. It's a book of teaching. So I'm aware of that. But at the same time, I say that history, which means contextualizing the Torah within the history of the Jewish people, is the way that um, creates a common denominator for all who want to seriously connect to the Bible to connect to it. So therefore, what I'm saying is, you have a particular, let's say, Jewish person in, in, in this, you know, the 10th century, or in the 15th century, or in the 6th century, and they're reading the same document, right? They're reading the same book of the Bible, of the Torah. The way they all can relate to it is by somehow feeling that they're reading the story of the ancient Jewish people. And it is the story of the ancient Jewish people. Right, even though it does start with, let's say, for example, I think this is why the question is asked. You know, it's, it starts impersonal because it starts with the creation of everything, right? And that I think is why that question is asked. Why do we start from the creation of everything? And one of the classic answers is, is that well, that's also personal because that's going to serve us so that we can understand what is our place in the world and what is our place in the land of Israel. So, so the rabbis struggled mightily to try to make that as relevant as possible also. But ultimately, it's a story of us. It's our story. It's a personal story of our people. And if you start that way and understand it that way, even though you understand that it's not a history book as history goes, but it's a story of our people, it's like if you wrote a story of your family that you wanted your children to read, you also wouldn't hold yourself necessarily to, you know, the strictures of what a his, good history book or, you know, the laws of, I don't know, mm-hmm. writing history are. You know, you, you, you would write something very personal. Right. And that's what you would want them to have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the part that is so hard for us today because we've lost that personal touch of, like, every time we sit and read the Bible and we read the Torah, um, we're reading about ourselves. We're reading about our history. And if you saw it that way, it's like when you pull out that picture for the hundredth time, you know, that you know you've seen it before, but when you pick it out, you know, again out of the book, you can still gaze at it for a good couple minutes because it just speaks to you. It's just like, oh, that's the way we were. Oh, and that's the way that person was, who was my father, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, grandparent, etc. Mm-hmm. And it speaks to you again and again. You see different things in it, right? So I feel that even if you had like a lot of pictures of kind of the same thing, you would realize that this is our story. So it's our story. So if the tab- the tabernacle, the, the Mishkan, is part of our story, well, you know what the story was? Well, we came out of Egypt, and then there was this thing, and then 
you know, we got the Torah and then, and then there was a huge problem because we all made a huge mistake with the golden calf. And then, and then, but you know, we built this tabernacle. I mean, imagine if you had a personal story where just two generations ago, somebody was telling you, you know, that your grandparents were nomads and they, but they built like a, like a temple in the middle of the desert. I mean, you'd want to know like, what, how did they build it? Like, like, what did they do? Like who, who told them how to do it? And, and like, who's in charge, and what did it look like, and you, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. So it's an approach. It doesn't. It's not an end all. It's not a, like a, this answers everything question. You know, possibility. But it's to me, it's at least at least the beginning of an approach. I think you you need to start there. Mm-hmm. You know. So what you're saying is, as as one approach to learning the narrative of Torah that seems to be so disconnected to us like the building of the mishkan of the tabernacle is um is this uh, approach of putting it into context of what was happening then and then sticking yourself into that context making it very personal to myself yeah we'll just make it personal in that state that statement wasn't personal until you said that last word i mean just mm-hmm. say it's a story of your grandparents right that's what it is it's 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 not a history, but it's the story of your grandparents. This is what happened to a very formative, not formative. This is what happened to your grandparents. This is the story of the Jewish people. This is the story of your people. Mm-hmm. Now you can say, well, why do we choose to tell the story this way? Oh, okay. So now you're getting to a level of analysis where it brings you to a different place. And you can start seeing different significances. But if you already, if you approach from the beginning with like an omnisignificant um, approach and, a, and an attitude, you're always going to be frustrated. It's not, it's not, the, the Torah is not coming out of a vacuum. It's really was chosen, and you have to see it for that. It was a decision to write a history of the people that were going to receive the Torah. It was their story. Mm-hmm. And it was the way that God said to Moses, to Moshe, you know, through prophecy, that this is the way I want you to write it. Which of course gives it a tremendous amount of significance. It's not just a story of our people; it has it's there to teach us stuff. But but it it's much more I don't know let's say fathomable or approachable or um, less bothersome when you start. I think we have such an analytical approach to to reading the Bible. You know, each word and each. Because it all has phrase. to mean something and give us eternal wisdom, right? And so you're just trying, and you're you know desperately trying to, you know, to 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 suck some some you know very d- deep meaning out of it, and a lot of times you just feel let down because you, that, at least in these sections, you know, we we don't we're not taught how to do that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, sometimes you can do it, and sometimes you can't. And a per, maybe I should just say, well, you know, this is just one of those things. But just the preponderance of the, like, even if you look at the, you know, the Mepharshim, the uh, the commentaries, right? there's a lot of commentary on a lot of, on most of the parts of the Torah, of the five books of Moses, right? But these parts don't have much commentary. Mm-hmm. So that means even the great commentators weren't commenting much. <laughs> they weren't. They, they, they were also, chill. like, looking at it and going, like, well, what do, I don't what do we say? You know, I'm serious. If you open up, just let's say you open up a chumash or here, you know, so you, you can go like right over here 
in the instruction part, it's the instruction of, you know, all the all this clothes and the different vessels and the way they were supposed to make the construction. Okay, it's like kind of, you know, it's kind of foolish here in the commentary. But then when you get to the implementation part, it's like, like a lot of Bible text, a lot of Torah text, very little commentary. Mm-hmm. Very little. You know, and you're like, well, hmm. And when you go back, I guess, to something like the Ten Commandments or something like that, or, or I don't know, Crossing the Sea, you know, you have a lot of commentary on these stories or laws or whatever, or a mixture of the two. So you're left thinking, like, okay, even the commentators were struggling with, like, what should they say? There's nothing to say. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot, though, like, as you were describing, um, thinking about it as the story of my grandparents and kind of looking at a picture, I kind of, like, I I felt that, like, oh, like, I really could read through these, these um, partio as, like, looking into, like, a picture of our old house in Providencia and kind of remembering what the couches looked like and the table and the backyard because it brings back feelings of like warmth and connection and fluffy and nice. And I feel like to be able to um, connect to this as without the pressure of feeling like it has to be, there has to be some eternal secret or something or eternal wisdom here that I have to understand and look at it more as, as like, Ooh, like this is a story of how, I can, like, see what the house chill was. Like, where was the living room? And where were they standing? And what were the the Kohanim doing? And that looks like such a nice blanket that goes over the... I'm showing... Like, I yell at a picture as we speak of, you know, this is what, in fifth grade, what we were being sought, you know, showed. I mean, I, I thought it was cool. I've always remembered these pictures. I like the pictures. A lot of color to them, what it looked like. And I guess... The part that most remained to me wasn't the details, but actually these pictures. Because they're relatable to it. It's like, oh, that's that's pretty amazing looking, you know. Majestic, detailed. Very detailed. And then and then you look, I, I got this other book here, which is... Yeah, maybe you mentioned what they're called, and that way people could actually maybe look them up. Or Well, this one's old, the Tabernacle by Moshe Levine. And then uh, this one's called The Light of the Temple, which is made by the Temple Institute in the Old City. Light of the Temple by the Temple Institute. Oh, they have that little museum in the old city, right? Right. So here, it kind of like gives you like these, a historical kind of look of what it might have looked like, you know, 2,000 years ago or two and a half thousand years ago. You know, huge edifice and people streaming towards it and music, you know, in the temple and sacrifice and... People bringing fruit baskets, and they're riding camels (laughs) to be chill. Yeah, and people coming from all over the place, you know, to make a pilgrimage to Aliyah Larego. I mean, clearly different life that we we don't recognize. But I guess the first thing is, when you look at it, do you go, man, these people are primitive. Like, what does this have to do with me? You know, because I'm not primitive, and it's not relevant at all. Or do you say, if someone told you, like, here, you know, this guy in this picture, he's your great, 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 <laughs> I'm saying starting from there, 
if you really believe that this is the story of your people, then you look at it with a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we're so, I think that in and of itself is something that we just don't do anymore. Like, yeah, I know it, you know, maybe by Jews, it's much more, um, it's, it's part of the way we live. But, I, you know, I have friends in university that they never, many of them just never even knew where they came from and they didn't care. Like, I used to ask them, like, how many generations are you in America? They were like, who cares? <laughs> That's such a basic question for us. Like, oh, yeah, you're American? How, how long were your parents yeah, in America from for? Poland, <laughs> you're from Russia, you're from Hungary, you're originally from Switzerland, from Germany. I mean, it makes a, di- it makes a difference because it just connects us to the past because we're so connected to the past. And I think that perhaps a little bit of a refreshing of that idea is something necessary to do. When you read you know, portions like this, because um, um, I think our approach of like the analytical uh, learning approach, you know, of, um, we need to plumb the profound messages all the time right now as we read them, needs to take, I guess, a backseat to just feeling that we're reading about our home. We're reading about the temple, which was our home. And how does that hit you? How do you feel? You're you're being asked more to feel about it than to think about it, I think. Right. It's like when you look at pictures of your grandparents, then you kind of get this nostalgic feeling, even though you've never been there. Like, oh, I wonder wonder what it smelled like, or I wonder what it must have been like to hang out on that couch with all the cousins. It's it's interesting that you point that out, but actually one of the things Maimonides says about the, the importance of the Ketoret, which is the incense, was that. It was it was supposed to the smell is also incredibly important for the experience, just like it is in um, in your home. Yeah. I just lost my sense of smell and taste, and I'm just walking around like, nothing smells like anything. Make you feel bad. But, <laughs> so uh, boring. It does connect. I mean, it, it, it's saying not being able to smell creates a disconnection. It's, it, it's true. I really feel it now. It's like walking around and not feeling any difference. Like, there's something so satisfactory about walking into a bakery and smelling heaven. <laughs> or, or, yeah, like it's, I want to walk into my room and it's like, does it smell like lavender? Because I love lavender. Like, I don't even know what my room smells like. Right. So, it's, yeah. It's like, what? Like a lot of holistic type of uh, experience where I think we're being asked to do. I think what, I, what I'm saying is, is I guess in the end, is that we're being asked to suspend a little bit our typical analytical selves, as a, a typical analytical approach towards reading and then analyzing the text. And then these psukim, we're, we're, we're using a different side of our brain, I guess you could say, we're using a different side of human experience. And... Yeah, it's, through yeah, it sounds a little hippie, but it's like personal. Yeah, it's like read, you know, read about the temple, read about the old temple, like what it looked like, the context, the context. The, I mean, the because it enables connection it. at the end of the day. Right. Making it personal enables connection, and I think it might even in, help us understand more about what you raised before about like this desire. We all know that we're supposed to want um, and wait and anticipate the coming of the of the the third temple and and the connection and. And I feel like it's actually helpful for me, at least like during this conversation, I I felt like, oh, that could be nice, you know, to have to have a place that feels homey and spiritual and a place that 
you know, might even, you might even go like, oh, I read about this, or like, this must be the couch that, that I saw in those pictures. It makes it a lot more tangible and real, and, and I think it does help, at least for me, it helps create more of an anticipation that's more wholesome, I would say, and more in line with what it is that's, that we're hoping to have. I think that was, that was a nice shift that happened throughout this conversation. Well, imagine, imagine if we had like a, like a a manual for how to read the Torah. Like when you read these sections, turn off this part of your, you know, focus, (laughs) focus on this part. You know what I'm saying? It's like an interesting Mm -hmm. thought to think that maybe we're just missing more human experience. Yeah. Like we're, we're, we're a little bit too obsessed with like how, what, what texts mean to us and what we're supposed to be doing with them. And perhaps there is much more of a holistic experience when you read texts. I mean, there definitely are, you know, uh, in the world of, of uh, meditation and things, you know, there are, ways to to connect just with the the feeling that that are that's being conjured up through meditation and readings and uh repetition of words and stuff like you know we're aware of that uh, that it does uh, it does channel a different side of ourselves and and maybe this is one of those experiences you know we're just we're we're trying to approach it a different way because it is very, very intimate. You're talking about the intimate of the intimate. You're talking about creating a place on earth for God, which in and of itself is incredibly significant because um, Rabbi Sachs, is the, the, chief, the late chief rabbi of England, always used to say, um, Judaism is not about how to take the journey of your soul and ascend to heaven. It's about how to bring heaven down to earth. And this is clearly one of the most prominent examples. I mean, so much effort and space and attention to detail that's given to creating a house for God on earth. So if that's what we're talking about here and trying to get our heads around what that means exactly and how that's attained, I think we need to speak about that some other week. Um, Maybe it's asking for us to be a little bit more just experiential when it comes to the readings. I dig that. Like let it in, you know. Mm-hmm. Let the like and and if there's so much there's so much there. It's the 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 sheer details and the, the the expression of the beauty of it and the tapestry and the and the artistry and the craftsmanship. It's there. Mm-hmm. I think that's really nice. I I would I'm down to take that food for thought. Yeah, and and I would invite I guess everyone, all our listeners, and anyone else who's here to really maybe take that upon yourself this week as as something different to do um, during the Sabbath, or if you don't keep the Sabbath during the weekend, like how could you read this week's text and the coming text in a more experiential way that's more personal and has to do with you and making it making it about the experience of what it must have been like and what it could be like when it comes again, just making it a lot more personal. I think that would be the main, the main word here. And I think it, it's very, it's, I'm looking forward to doing that over, 
over Sabbath, just going over the the text and kind of just looking at it more as if it was the house of my grandparents. I'm like, oh, that must have been yeah, nice. How, do you, how would you do your interior design if you were making a house that, you know, you want it to be a significant place where people can really connect and like... But then also allowing yourself to then go through that experience. You understand and see how the house was made and then creating that familiarity with what it must have been like physically and then you can put the steps in and the, oh and then the the priest was going through that and that must have been such an incredible experience once once you can own that imagery that that belongs now to you cuz you made it personal i think it's a lot easier to then tap into what the experience must have been like and i think that could be very powerful very very right. powerful i mean ultimately all of the experiences of the learning are are meant to cross pollinate in other words it's Really, when you read even a dry law, that's all about analysis and stuff seemingly on the surface. There's also supposed to be this dimension of, like, this is speaking to me personally, intimately. Mm-hmm. But there, that's not, like, the first approach to it. Here, it's, like, the other way around. You know what I'm saying? Like, you get, perhaps, to the deeper analysis once you go through the door of an intimate space and uh, personal feeling and experience. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. So challenge to all those uh, intellectual people out there who are cracking their heads, <laughs> trying to understand what the meaning of the size and dimensions of the curtains and the Holy of Holies was. Maybe just take a chill. And I mean, just... he still is hallowed ground. In other words, it, a lot of the detail, a lot of the attention to the laws of the temple is because in order for, and this will, I think we'll talk about some other week, but in order to create these, this reality, it has to be treated differently. It's not about taking a chill. It's about, about being hyper-focused. Now, it's about being hyper-focused. <laughs> but you can be hyper-focused on beauty, too. You can be hyper-focused on the aesthetics of something. Saying take, take a chill from trying to really crack out the eternal meaning and kind of just let yourself experience what it may have been like. Right. Taking yourself out of that need to make everything be incredibly meaningful and and First right and and whipping out all that you know juicy meaning and kind of just let yourself feel it out and feel like it it belongs to you and that you're connected to it and it's not something that you're looking at and scrutinizing but something that you're experiencing. Great high five. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, everybody, and have a great weekend. Shabbat shalom. And remember to to like give us a little like hala. To that email. Um, we love your questions and your thoughtful, you know, insights or triggers. Like we're all about that. So definitely feel free to drop us a hey questions, triggers, uh, comments to our email. It's fdhp.feedback at gmail.com. It's basically just the initials of the podcast.feedback at gmail.com. Bye everybody. Be blessed. Have an awesome week.